Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Kevin is a Cornell University graduate who has worked for several large studios, including Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and DreamWorks. After years of writing as a hobby, he took a draft of his screenplay, talk show, and used it to gain entrance into the Guy Hanks and Marvin Miller Screenwriting Fellowship Program at the University of Southern California. Kevin has written a number of books, but more recently, he has completed his third book, his first non-fiction work, The White Supremacy Playbook, Decoded. The Inner Workings of White Supremacy and Its Impact on Blacks and Other People of Color. We are so excited to discuss his latest endeavor and to catch up with Kevin today on CTN with J.D. Fuller. All right, Kevin, welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me back. Well, first of all, let me just tell you, it has not been easy. I appreciate your patience with the chaos, and, no. and I look forward to getting into your, your new book. Yeah, no, I'm just excited to be on. I've been listening to you for a while now, and several of your guests. They're all really compelling. I just hope I can live up to it. You already have, just by being yeah. who you are. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the motivation for this book before we get into it. And then I'm going to say the name as my second question. But what was the motivation? What what happened? It, it came in steps. It wasn't, you know, I, as you know, I started out wanting to do screenwriting. Okay. And when I, you know, got sick and moved here, I thought, well, that, you know, not being in Hollywood kind of made it difficult to pursue that, even though there's a lot of production here. But I started writing books and it was always kind of my thing to write fiction. So it was just sort of an organic thing that happened. I think, what year was that? It was before the pandemic, but, you know, the, the word woke has been villainized, but I think when people started getting woke, I realized I was a little bit ahead of the curve and I can't explain why, but there were things I was saying and understanding and conversations that I was having where people were just kind of like, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. So it's like that kind of developed as I sort of became more and more aware of what was going on. It developed into something that I thought I needed to share, you know? Um, and so that's kind of how it came about, but it was really in steps. I never thought I would write nonfiction. Okay. Well, that's you know, fascinating. So and this, you know, most people who've read my earlier stuff know this is like a very different kind of writing for me. Um, yeah. You know, in the name alone, I mean, the white supremacy playbook. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. went from characters to characterizations, <laughs> if you will. It's so funny, Denise, because this book has taken years. You know, I still have health challenges, you know, where I go down and I can't write. You know, my voice is, as you can hear, my voice is kind of goes in and out. Mm -hmm. um, so I apologize that it's probably shaky now. No apology. But the, the first couple of years, I didn't know what to call the book. So I kind of just had working title, right? I knew that in my mind when I first started that the doll test was like really kind of a big deal to me. And I know you know what the doll test is, but usually when I ask people, do you know what the doll test is? It's either like a little confusion 
And then when you start to explain it, they go, oh, yeah, 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 no. But most people don't kind of have it in their consciousness, in the front of their mind. But for those who don't know, the doll test would be a, a, a black doll and a white doll. The black children were asked, which doll do you prefer? You know, they were asked a bunch of questions about preference with the dolls. And there was a, a overwhelming preference for the white doll over the black doll among black children. So I was thinking I was going to call it like passing the doll test because I kind of feel like we've been failing, right? But I just thought it didn't resonate with me, passing it. So I was like surpassing the doll test, like just getting by it. So I had all these versions in my head and I was like, I don't know what to call this book. So I was asking a lot of other people, like, what do you think, you know, based on this premise? Nobody could give me a name. And now I, I because... I have a chapter called the white supremacy playbook and I refer to the playbook almost on every page. It doesn't make sense that I ever thought of anything else as a title. It's the only thing that really makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you explain it like that, it just, it was organic. It just was happening. Yeah, it's all really organic. And then now, I put decoded, I, I put decoded on there because I gave a couple of early drafts to different people and they went out and they were reading it at Starbucks and they said they started to feel like people might think they were reading a book about how to become a white supremacist. So, and I was like, oh yeah, I, that makes sense to me. So some of them were getting dirty looks and they got kind of embarrassed and they didn't want to read the book. So I added decoded to kind of, you know, give a little bit of clarification to that. Wow. I can imagine what they felt like reading that book. <laughs> were they, well, they started kind of trying to hide the cover. But wait a minute, know. were they white bodied as well? One was Latina and one was white. Yeah. Wow, man, yeah. that really blinks <laughs> up a certain image when you say that. Yeah, yeah. I want to start with the the JB quote: "People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them." Out of all the quotes, quotes to lead with, why this one? Because it, it, I mean, it's really what the book is about, right? It really resonated. A friend of mine from high school was visiting was visiting two weeks ago. I originally had a different quote there. Really? I put, yeah, I put that quote in maybe like a month ago. So it was before it, the book came out, but I had a different quote there. And I showed her one of the copies with the old quote, and then I showed her that one. And she started screaming and running around my living room. Because <laughs> she was like, that is just so perfect. And if you read the book, it's like, it's really what it's about. It's like, you know, 250 years of conditioning, you know, that we don't have any control over. We can't go back and fix that conditioning. But, you know, we're stuck in that place, right? And then a lot of that is still stuck in our brains. And that's really what the book is about, right? Is yeah. how that, I'm really trying to illustrate how those narratives, and this is why the name of your podcast is so great, Thank how you. those narratives got into our head. You know. I want to say that I... I mean, who doesn't love James Baldwin? So that's just yeah. begin with that. And there's yeah. a zillion quotes you could have used that would have been great. Yeah. But I absolutely agree with you, friend. I think the I'm just looking at it as I'm as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you know, that idea of of a history of being trapped in a in a in a history. And then also it's got us trapped as well. I mean, it lives in our yeah. bodies, it lives in our yeah. brain. It is trapped. Yeah. So that yeah, it is trapped out for me and and that's what i think we're endeavoring to do is to like release that history right from our bodies and to move forward i'm hoping that that book you know even if it's just a 
fraction of what I got out of writing it, I think that could be a good thing. Well, we're going to get to I learned a lot. If, don't you get ahead. Don't you get ahead. I don't no, wanna... I'm not going to get ahead, but I just I want to say, when I set out to write the book, I had very clear ideas in my mind. And to be honest, I had a lot of anger when I first started writing the book. You know, researching that stuff, you know, drew up a lot of anger. And I, before I even started writing, I was talking about this stuff constantly. Like, I, I became that guy, you know, where if I was a mixed company and somebody said the wrong thing, I'm like, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? I was jumping down people's throats. And so I kind of became that guy. And one friend here actually said, you know, you can be irritating. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you get a tone. And I, you know, I have to admit, I did, I would get a tone really quickly. And I became aware that the tone distracts from the point, right? Because now you're not listening to my point, you're listening to my tone. Right? But, we also, but we also have to talk about the history of being tone policed and mm -hmm. how it is a preferred distraction because it implies anger. And if, you know, our, when your skin is the weapon, you know, how can your tone not be, you know, additional ammunition? So, right, right. right. Well, I, so I have mixed feelings about that. I think number one, when you look at the history, there's no way to not be angry. You know what I mean? That's valid to be angry. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't be angry. I just realized that my message, no matter how good it was, was getting missed. I get that. Right? So I realized at a certain point, I had to kind of learn how to address these issues without getting the tone. And it's writing this book has helped me. I'm not all the way there yet. Yes. I'll, depending on how the discussion comes about and what types of things are happening, I, the tone will come up. And then I try and, you know, monitor myself in that way. But, but writing the book helped me to release a lot of that. And there were things that I learned through writing it that, you know, kind of have been revelatory for me too. So I hope, like I said, even if a fraction of that comes across to readers, that it will be a good thing. Two things. One, I can tell that in the course of the book. I can, I can, mm -hmm. you know, knowing you and then also, even if someone doesn't knowing you, you can, you can feel the journey. Yeah. That's yeah. Pretty, pretty evident yeah. in this process. And two, I totally agree with you. When you are teaching, you have to keep it as neutral as possible, even almost emotionless. And what I found out is that when I wasn't feeling the rage, you know, as Dr. Jen says, when I wasn't feeling the rage or, or I wasn't, you know, getting passionate about what I was saying, that the sadness would emerge. And mm -hmm. that was coming up in class pretty regularly for me. Yeah. And that's yeah. also equally uncomfortable and, and, and excessively vulnerable with people who we don't know if they can actually hold all of that, all the complexity right. of the many feelings of which you speak. Right, right. Right. Well, yeah, for some people, it's really difficult to manage that. Right. So it can manifest in all kinds of negative behaviors. Right. Or antisocial behaviors. So we have, you know, we have to be careful and be aware, you know, of how our interactions are affecting other people. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I quote Paul Mooney several times, you know, in the book. And, you know, part of what he says is, you know, you look what you put us through through hundreds of years. You know what I mean? Because in his comedy, it was very biting. Um, I think it was, you know, people weren't familiar with his comedy and they came in. A lot of, you know, white people would get upset and get up and leave. And he would call them out and say, look at her. 
you know, she's uncomfortable after 20 minutes, you know, but they made us uncomfortable for 200 years. You know what I mean? And so I do think about, you know, that there's validity to the anger. There's validity to the sadness. You know, that's humanity, you know, that's and any other way to put it, it's humanity. That is humanity. I, I agree with yeah. you. Look, there's a lot to unpack. So I decided to choose from a few sections just to tantalize the reader. Okay. Um, one thing that I want to start with is talk about the white supremacy playbook and how it is infused throughout the indoctrination in the process of whiteness, right? Because you, you, what, you, what you lay out here is that, you know, the structure of, yeah. of right? Yeah. And the playbook as the manual. And so it's a great metaphor and also a reality. Right. Well, I wanted you right. to just, just talk about how that's a part of the indoctrination. Right. Well, when I get into the playbook part, I talk about, you know, the, the Merriam-Webster definition is like a, you know, a series of methods and tactics, right? And so we grew up in an educational system that was really entrenched in that. And it's not even just the educational system. That's just one part of the puzzle. So if you think about the television that you and I grew up on, right, which was a lot of I Love Lucy reruns, soap operas, you really didn't see a lot of black characters. And if you saw them, they were stereotypes, right? They were stereotypes. So, I mean, imagine being a young child who doesn't know anything and then you're being exposed to this imagery, right? Where all the black people are either in subservient positions or they're prostitutes or pimps or they're doing criminal things. Or if you open the fashion magazines and you see, you're mainly seeing whiteness, you know what I mean? Or when you turn on the TV and you're looking at commercials, you're saying whiteness. So that really starts to construct all of that in your brain, right? Because that's everything that you're getting exposed to. And if you want to get exposed to something else, it's, it's very niche. You know what I mean? We had Jet Magazine and we had Ebony and Essence. But if you didn't go there, you didn't see us that much. You know, hardly anywhere. And if you were educated in white spaces, you, right. you didn't have right. access to those most likely yeah. or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was just telling somebody yesterday that I had a ball in San Diego. I went to UCSD. I had a ball. I loved it down there. But if I had to go back, I don't know that I would go. I probably would have gone to a black college. Don't um, get me started. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> and I went to a predominantly black high school. I graduated from one anyway. And that was a discussion on a lot of people's minds, you know, when we were getting ready to graduate, like what school should we go to? And all the arguments seemed reasonable. You know, I, I went down to San Diego for a host of different reasons. But, you know, when I worked on a TV show, most of the, you know, that was the first time I worked with 99% black people. And a lot of them had been to black colleges. And I just saw a difference. I saw a difference. It's and it's things like you don't know what you don't know. So when I was in high school, I didn't know that my long-term effects would be better because at UCSD, you know, it's not only that you're getting, I know you don't like the word microaggressions, mm -hmm. but it's not only that you're getting that from the establishment, right? You're also getting that from other people of color. Yeah, well, upholding supremacists. You know, I, my parents, you know, were fairly successful in their careers. And they thought it was important for me to go to college. So it was always my understanding they were going to pay for me to go to college. And I remember my freshman year, it was probably week one. 
um, a lot of people of color were coming to me and going, wow, weren't those lines long at financial aid? And I was like, I don't know. You know what I mean? But I was like realizing, okay, these are assumptions that are being made, not only by white people, but by people of color are making these assumptions about me. And those assumptions are across the board. And this is partly what I wrote the book for is that, you know, we do make these assumptions about each other. You know, we get mad when they're made about us from other demographics, but we make them about each other. And I think, um, I think it all comes from the same machine. I mean, it's all from, yeah. you know, upholding a, a system that we're upholding even when we don't know it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, it's, I mean, that's the indoctrination right there. Like that's how deep yeah. it is, you know, yeah. it's also, I think as people of the global majority, it's a way to join with each mm -hmm. other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way to try to, you know, find that commonality so we can, un so we can know, we can know who you are. Cause that's one thing right. we like to do in the community, who you and are. that commonality is there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's there. But I do think sometimes what's married along with that commonality is blocking your blessings, right? And, you know, I can't speak for every demographic, but I know, you know, African-Americans, and I'm not so sure about these younger generations, but the whole term of the man, right? The man won't let me do that. You know, I don't know how many times you've heard that, but, you know, when I was young, I heard that quite a bit. And so when you say the man won't let you do that, and it's not that the man isn't going to try and stop you from doing it. I don't, you know, I want to make that clear. But if you've given up, right, already, then, you know, if some of that commonality is in that area, then we're like basically blocking ourselves from sitting at the table, which is not only a metaphor, you know what I mean? Because when I worked in corporate, I didn't try to sit at the table. If I went into a conference room with a bunch of people, a lot of times I would go sit on the wall. And you don't realize, you know, all the different ways in which you're subliminally saying, I don't see myself as being valid sitting there. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I'm hoping the book can kind of maybe remove some of those barriers that we're putting up or, or some of the stigmas that we carry, you know, yeah. that are developed from out of that. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I love hearing different people's perspectives on this because what it does is it just, it provides opportunities for conversation from different perspectives. And that's what we need yeah. in the community. We yeah, yeah need, definitely. You know? Racism being white supremacy and white supremacy being racism. What did you learn about yourself and others when writing chapter seven, the manifestations of racism? Oh, well, yeah, the manifestations of racism. I mean, we all see, have seen all the different places where they come out, right? It's kind of like what we've been talking about, right? you know, in commercials and, you know, the, the, you know, when we were on Soul Food, we spent almost a week talking about, and this is something that it, it, at the time I, I was aware of it, but I hadn't really kind of thought it through. We spent almost a week talking about how black males, you know, young black males are, are taught to be fearful of their future, mm. right? So I don't know if you remember the statistics, but the, the statistics were, if you're a young black male, the chances are you will be dead or in jail by the time you're 25, right? And that was repeated throughout, you know, my high school years. And I remember thinking, what am I doing in my life that's going to put me either being dead or in jail? You know what I mean? You have to ask yourself that. And it's like, you know, also how 
black parents have to educate their children about you know interactions with the police so those are all the subtleties of where it's layered in i mean there's really no point in our life where it's not layered in yeah and like you said you know the limitations of images throughout the years you know you start to develop psychologically this mentality that I'm I'm not going to exist. I don't exist and and I don't see myself in the future. And that's the right. danger. That's the danger. Right. Well, also there was no reason why I was going to be dead or in jail. Right, right. That's, and then there's <laughs> well, then there's that, that is something that I had to kind of to grapple with, right? And and even just thinking about like how am I going to avoid becoming a statistic? Mm. You know, and it's just something, you know, I mean, I I wasn't sure if I should make the, you know, analogies with the matrix, but it just, yeah. it really did resonate with me because it's a whole reality that's constructed, right? And if you don't know that that's not reality, then you live in it as if it's reality, mm-hmm. you know? And to yeah. me, that was like a perfect metaphor. It's like, we've been living in this narrative as if it's reality, you know, and now we're starting to deconstruct it and realize that it's narrative. It's not reality, it's narrative. Right. What? Well, I think what was important about the matrix is that it, it it's again it's tied to your journey and people seeing your perspective yeah. really being open yeah. to something that might not have been present before which is just helpful when you're when you are trying yeah. to speak the narrative it's beneficial to hear yeah. the different perspectives and the experience yeah. that's why it made sense to me and sci-fi just you know to finish that off sci-fi yeah. is always kind of used to illustrate difficult points right of course yes you know so Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes was about slavery, right? But you and I might watch that, whereas, whereas you know, when 12 Years of Slaves com- comes out, we might not want to watch that right away. You know what I mean? Because there's all that sort of generational trauma that is going to get dredged up that doesn't get dredged up if you're watching the X-Men, because the X-Men is also about discrimination, but in sort of a sci-fi thing. So sci-fi has always been good to kind of illustrate some of those points in a way that feels safe, you know? Yeah, that's what's fascinating about it. I don't think I knew that growing up and it's become very clear to me when I'm when I'm watching things sometimes. It's like, oh, damn, that is really this and that's that. Yeah. It's me a while to wrap myself around that, but I absolutely think that's true. Let's jump to chapter 10. The unfortunate and, and unfortunate marriage of racism and misogyny. What led yeah. you there and what, and what is the message? Well, the message is understanding like kind of the complete picture, you know? So if, you know, white supremacy is about white people being fearful of getting replaced, right? The question becomes, how are they going to get replaced? And, and the white supremacists will tell you, well, we're going to get replaced through interracial breeding, right? Because interracial breeding doesn't lead to the birth of white children, right? You know, also through immigration. So there are all these things that, you know, the white supremacist is fearful of. And so if that's the worry, then the first concern becomes, we need white women to give birth only to white babies, right? Because white supremacy is about their heterosexual white male staying in positions of power, right? So if he wants to stay in a position of power and make sure that white people continue to thrive, he has to get control of white women to make sure that white women are not choosing 
whatever partner they want, right? Because maybe that's not necessarily a white man. So that, that leg of it is we first must get control of white women, which is a misogynistic slant, right? Because we, you know, if we can be control of all women, that's important, but we, we need us. There's a specificity for what they need to control with white women, which, which is their, you know, ability to procreate, you know? And so I put in the book, you know, that some people believe striking down Roe versus Wade was about taking control of the procreative functions, specifically of white women, right? And there's that, you know, there was that, I can't remember her name, Mary something. It's not really important what her name is, but she's in Illinois and she spoke at a rally and said, I would like to thank, you know, Donald Trump for, you know, this is a victory for, for white life. However, she said it, right? After Roe versus Wade, she said, this is a victory for white life. And then she said, I misspoke. Or her representative said, I misspoke and I meant to say, right to life. Or, or yes, something yes, like I remember. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. So, so I do think that that's a belief and that's, you know, that's where that kind of component of you've got to marry those two. So first I've got to control white women. And then after that, I've got to get control of men of color, right? Because those are my competitors, right? If I'm a white male and I feel that I'm being competed with by men of color, then I need to control them. So a lot of the things that, you know, the black codes or you know, whatever you want to call them, all of the sort of racist legislation that has existed in this country is about kind of corralling men of color and people of color in general. But, you know, there's a specificity toward, you know, kind of controlling men who are seen as rivals. Right. Yeah, that's well, well, well explained. That's that's good. Yeah. That's helpful. I think it's important for people to know some of the nuances in the book so they so they they understand what they're walking into and that's right why, <laughs> that's why i picked a couple of the most yeah. i don't know yeah. i want to say provocative but most like expressive chapters to to get okay so a uh, chapter 17 the playbook's collateral damage what do you yeah. call it and when a wound keeps being agitated can that damage ever really repair itself? So we've been we've been talking a bit about the collateral damage already. Yeah. So it's it's just kind of in the same theme. But I ha- I always have this image of damage, and you know, when when a car gets dented, you can repair it, and it's almost like new. But there's always something that always something that's not right. 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 Well, so so that you just answered the question, right? Or, or you made me realize what I think my answer to the question is. Okay. It can be repaired, but even when the body repairs itself, there's a scar, right? And so it can't necessarily be repaired where to the point where it's like the damage never happened. Even in your car, it's like, you know, I got rear-ended, you know, when I first got here and they repaired the car and it looked the same, but the car, when I would pop the trunk, it would open itself. No, oh, okay. After the repair, when I would pop the trunk, it wouldn't open itself. And so, and it also made little rattling sounds that it didn't make. So I was aware, I ended up getting rid of that car because I felt like it was a constant reminder of the damage that was done to the car. And it took a really long time to repair. It looked fine from the outside, but I was aware that damage had been done to the car, you know? And so even when your body, it might heal mostly up if you're lucky, but there's probably a little bit of a scar that if you point it out, you can see it. And I think 
that's where we are, right? It's like we can repair it, but not to a point where we are, where the damage becomes completely invisible to us. Yeah, that was a great example. I appreciate that. You worked in Hollywood. We talked about it a little bit. I just want you to dabble a little bit in what the white supremacy playbook looks like in the den- in the industry and what are some of the familiar tactics used. So I'm happy to say I think that there have been some significant shifts, you know, in the last probably five years or so. But I, you know, one of my friends who read the book recently said, I'm never going to look at movies the same. And, and I'll be honest, you know, full disclosure, I, I originally had structured the book where I had part one and part one was all kind of the real world examples. And part two was going to be a lot of film and TV examples. And because, you know, film and TV is kind of an area I'm really familiar with, it felt to a lot of readers so specific that it felt like this is for film students. You know, this is for people who are studying film and TV. And so I removed a lot of stuff. So I left some stuff, but I removed a lot of stuff. I think, you know, that's why I say the name of your podcast, Changing the Narrative, is interesting because the narrative in white supremacy, you know, I, I did a whole chapter on Birth of a Nation, right? And it's, you know, the portrayal of Black people in that is so, you know, it's a portrayal of Blackness through the white gaze to the extent that the main black characters are actually white actors and blackface, right? So there's no real authenticity in that. And I kind of feel like to a degree, that's where we're starting. You know, that was 1915, I think. So that's where we're starting with this imagery of black people as white people have chosen to portray us, right? So we're starting, that's our starting point. So I removed it, but I did a whole chapter on Tarzan the Ape Man you know what I mean? And so Tarzan the Ape Man, 99% of the people that die in there are black. Like nobody else dies except for black people. And they're really disposable. There's no, you know, there's no worry about, do, should we bury them? Should we have a ceremony? It's just like, they're just killed off. And so, you know, that became a trend that lasted for a really long time where, you know, the black people would at least die first, you know. And so it almost became, became kind of a joke. But there's also a, a really concerted need to disempower black characters and especially black males. They have to be disempowered. And so that's frustrating. And you'll see that, you know, and that's why I say I ruin movies for a lot of people because people will go see the movie and then I'll go see the movie and they'll say, I loved it. And I'll say, well, really? Because it was really racist. And what about X, Y, and Z? And I don't, I can't remember one circumstance where the person said I was wrong. It's something that we're not, I think we become, you know, desensitized to seeing these images to the point that we're not noticing them. You know, one of the examples I give in the book is Star Wars, The Force Awakens with a black stormtrooper. And I don't know if you're watching the Star Wars movies, but that was such a big marketing point that there was a black stormtrooper and it created a whole hubbub among people who thought there should not be a black stormtrooper. I don't know if you remember, there were a lot of complaints from, you know, sort of that stratosphere. But when I saw the movie, it was like he he was a coward. He couldn't fight. He lost every battle. Wow. He didn't want to fight. And when he and the only thing that caused him to want to fight was when a white character was in jeopardy. Then he would jump in to try to save her, right? And 
both times that he tried to save her, she had to save him because he was in a completely ineffective. And by the end of the movie, he was in a coma because he lost his battle and he was in a coma. So I'm like, he's essentially completely ineffective, which means he has no agency. Nothing he does affects the story at all. Right? And this is an extreme example. And John Boyega, who played that character, complained. He said, don't put black people in movies and act like their character is going to be important and then make them unimportant. You know? And so, yeah, you, there's no way you could feel good about playing that role because he was so ineffective. And I could, I could go through a dozen movies. Oh, I know you could. Yeah. In which that's done. No, know? absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, you know, to people, I mean, I, I think that majority of us in black bodies do recognize it and know it. But like you said, you know, desensitized to thrive. I mean, how much can you take in at one time? And so we pick our battles. But I do think when I point things out, you know, there was an incident the other day. I'm, I'm not a Hollywood example, but I was in a restaurant and I was in the line and a white gentleman just walked past the line, walked to the front. And I said, people of color would never do that. That's just mm -hmm. not right? Mm -hmm. He waited until he got to the front to ask the black guy, you know, is this the line for reservations or not? Right? Mm -hmm. So then he went back to the line. Later on, we were sitting down and this Asian gentleman was in, in the line and he asked, asked the person next to him, is this instead of walking to the front? Right, right. He was right. at the end of the line and asked the person next to him. And I pointed out to my white friend and I said, you see the difference? Mm -hmm. You know, see, there was no busting through people yeah. and yeah. just, you know, kind of taking that kind of privilege at hand. And I, and I think those kind of nuances, you know, particularly in film are so often missed because they don't impact people. How do they impact? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's what agency is, you know, you know, white supremacy tells white men, they have agency to go and forge their way. Right. And so, you know, it's not that all white people might do that, but it, it's, it's not uncommon. Right. And so, you know, the whole idea of Tarzan is this sort of Superman, right? He was Superman before there was Superman because he, he conquered not only, you know, the continent of black people, but all of the beasts that were within it. You know, he was the master of all of them. And so this is kind of like the idealized version of white supremacy, right? This little white baby who's dropped in Africa to fend for himself as raised by apes, but becomes the king of the jungle. You know, that's the whole, that's the whole idea. So, and that's part of the collateral damage, right? Is that, you know, every, everybody is kind of negatively impacted in some way, you know. It just made me think of something when you said that. Back then it was so simple to, you know, enact the playbook. It was yeah. so simple. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's make a jungle and let's yeah. have a baby and then one more king of the jungle and and the message right. is is you know the indoctrination is set. Now yeah. they have to be more sophisticated. It's so much yeah. more nuanced. You know, like yeah. when, when I say this, you've heard, if you've heard the podcast, you've heard me say it. The commercials you you rarely see dark brown skinned people loving dark brown skinned people on yeah. television or on the screen. Yeah. You really yeah. have to search for it. That is such a subtle, nuanced way. Well, we have black people, you know, where the colorism right. takes over. And they have to, one is, is evenly brown skin and the other one is light. It's rare. Right. You right. see it. Yeah. That's the more subtle, nuanced playbook being enacted. Right. And if, if I had to, you know, speculate about that, I would say that that's, you know, 
during slavery, you know, one of the big fears was of, you know, uprisings, right? That the slaves would rise up and kill the masters. And so it was really important to keep um, black people in situations where they couldn't congregate too much and they couldn't plan, you know what I mean? And you didn't really want any kind of cohesion within black communities because you were afraid of what that might lead to, right? And so I think that that's probably an offshoot of that in some level, you know, the, when I worked at DreamWorks, there were a group of black people who would play dominoes on the lunch hour. And after a time, they were asked not to do that, right? And I think that, you know, I talk about black methodologies and white methodologies, kind of knee-jerk knee reactions, but I think part of that is there's a discomfort of seeing black people congregating, you know what I mean? Even if they're just having fun, that well, makes especially some white, fun. Yeah. But, it, you know, it makes some people uncomfortable. Yeah. It, even some black people might be uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. You talk about rebranding. And I want to know in the last couple of questions, you know, what does it look like to rebrand America and the world? And, and as a part of that rebranding, I imagine equity needs to be a significant aspect of it. Do you think that's possible? I, I mean, I'm... You know, I talk in the beginning about the optimist versus the pessimist and how you could look at the same thing. And I, I do think of myself as an optimist. So I have to think it's possible because I can't be an optimist if I don't think it's possible. But, you know, it's one of those things where I, when Obama first ran for president, I was like, it's not going to happen. There's no way. You know what I mean? And, I, and a lot of black people were saying, we will not see a black president in our lifetime. And we did, you know, and he was reelected, you know, on the same note, I, I didn't think, you know, I've seen all the sci-fi movies, you know, um, with the self-driving cars. And I thought I'll never live to see that. Right. But we're living to see it. So there, there's been an acceleration, I think, in the last couple of decades where things are accelerating. And so I have to think, you know, it's going to be a lot of hurdles to get over to get that kind of equity but things are accelerating and it may just be that we'll see, we'll live to see these things. Like Maybe. I like your lens. It's helpful. You know, so as I said in the beginning, it's very clear that this book is your racial identity process, your journey and, yeah. and your reality. And it's woven into so many aspects of it. I just want to know what have you learned about yourself now versus 10 years ago, or even before you wrote the book, what, what does that look like for you? Oh, that's a tricky one because I just feel like so different now, even than myself 10 years ago, you know, let alone 20 years ago. And I, you know, I imagine a lot of us feel that way at the age that we are now, because just of the kind of things that we've had to go through. But I think the main thing that I could say is I don't think I would walk to the front of the line, but I do feel so much more empowered just sort of in my own kind of skin, for lack of a better word. I think having been able to kind of deconstruct the playbook and deconstruct a lot of the methods and tactics that were used to, you know, make black people feel, you know, a way that a lot of us feel. I think understanding that in sort of a clearer chronology 
has helped me to realize how false most of it is, right? And if it's false, then why do I need to carry that? Yeah. Right? So, so there's a lot of things that I feel just more kind of, you know, like I have more agency. You know, my opinions matter. You know, I, a few people told me I shouldn't write the book. Or they asked me, you know, well, what, what are your qualifications? Why are you qualified to write this book? And I had to think about that for a second. And I was like, well, you know, like you said, th these, this, you know, there's an aspect of this book that is very memoir-like. And then there's an aspect that's very kind of textbook-like. But I am telling my story and like kind of how I came to certain realizations and epiphanies. But I knew that a lot of those things were relatable because I didn't grow up in a vacuum. You know what I mean? So I knew that there were other people who had similar experiences and kind of came away with similar feelings. And so I, you know, I did my own empirical study, you know, <laughs> that's the way that I looked at it. So I, you know, I can write the book. And so, you know, and, and a lot of the narratives that we cling to, you know, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with Joy DeGruy. Of course. She, yeah. I listened to a talk by her and she was talking about this guy who's considered a trailblazer in anthropology and how he came up with all these racial constructs to like describe different races. And there's no science to it at all. And he's considered the father of, you know, sort of a lot of these ideas, you know, binomial nomenclature, you know, coming up with homo africanus and homo europaeus and all these, and then all these descriptions, which are really stereotypes that I don't know what he based those things on. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable. And you, right, it's unbelievable. And then you have to question who, when he was coming up with these things, who was telling him what qualifies you to do it, you know? So that's probably my biggest takeaway is that, you know, a lot of the things that I've been told, the narratives that I've been given are false. And so it's, you know, a matter of kind of trying to construct, you know, as much of the truth as is possible, you know, because there are two sides to each story and there's the truth a lot of times. So you may not be able to find the truth but it's somewhere in the in between there, you know. One of the things that I've always loved about you and been challenged by about you, and we go way back, is your optimism. You know, yeah. it's been it's been very helpful and it's also been challenging. And I mm -hmm. appreciate that about you sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your journey has been difficult and yet it, it just blessed in so many ways the way you present it and embrace it. And that's that's a lesson to all of us, quite, quite yeah. sincerely. You know, you're the kind of friend and colleague who's always on my mind and always in my heart, you know. Oh, thank I, you. <laughs> I mean, sincerely, I always miss you. I have so much respect for you. Life has moved too fast and we don't have the time to I get know. the wish we had. But just yeah. know that I just value you so much. And I'm so grateful you sat down and took to this and made it happen. I think it was really important and it's going to be important for the reader. So yeah. Many, Thank people, you. many Thank you. people buy it. So would you please yeah. tell people where they can buy it and if you have any social media handles? Yeah, it's, it's on Amazon, so you can get it in paperback, and it's also on Kindle. And originally, when I first launched it, they, those were in two separate links, but they've now combined them, so you can find the Kindle or the paperback in the same link on right. Amazon. Excellent. And I'm on LinkedIn, and then I'm K.O. Collins on Facebook. So, yeah, but um, I, but to, to add to what you said, you're not the only one. I don't know. I, I don't know if they would use the word challenge, but with my, I remember when I had my surgery, 
you know, my mom's friend was there and she sent me a get well card. And she said that I was smiling as I was being wheeled off to the operating room. And I wasn't aware that I was doing that. You know what I mean? But it's like, that's been commented on many times. I don't know where I get it from. I've just always been that way. And I don't really question it. I, I don't think you should. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a gift. Yeah. And, yeah. and challenging people is important. I mean, complacency, yeah. well, nothing's ever grown out of complacency. So yeah. I appreciate the challenge. And I love you very much. And thank you so much for your patience and making this happen. Oh, no problem. I love you too. And I'm That's glad that we were able to do this together. For yeah. sure. Okay, yeah. take care. All right, you too. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.